0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, what's up? Happy summertime. We've had a lot of great guests lately, and we've got another awesome show for you today. Today's guest is one of my favorite writers, editor of the Extreme Value Letter. He's also a host of of the podcast Stansberry Investor Hour. I got to listen to him just for his melodic voice. You'll hear it in a minute. Um, Welcome to the show, Dan Ferris.
1: Thank you. I've never heard anyone say I had a melodic voice, but I appreciate the compliment.
0: You know, I mean, even if I listen to you at 2X, which is my normal for podcasts, I was actually this morning while at the gym listening to you and another favorite writer and analyst, Mike Malbison, I always mask his last name, But that was a fun podcast you guys just did, a really highly recommended one. He's a bright mind.
1: Yes, I was really so thrilled when he agreed to get on. He's one of my favorite people in all of finance. He has a very particular way of looking at the world. And at this point, he's expanded from making decisions, you know, having a focus of making decisions about investing. I mean, his last two books got into just decision-making period. You know, sort of what Annie Duke might call thinking in bets, you know, just thinking probabilistically and finding ways to make decisions. And it was awesome to talk to him.
0: Dan, we got to do this. So you're in southern Washington right now. What's uh, what's summertime like up there? Just you and the bald eagles. And what else? What uh, what uh, what are you up to this summer?
1: Well, we don't get a lot of bald eagles here in the suburbs. That's just
0: that's my Los Angeles like belief. Like when I think of like the Pacific Northwest, it's just trees and forests and bald eagles.
1: Well, lots of trees. I mean, looking out my window here as I speak to you, I'm surrounded by 100 plus foot Doug Furs, Douglas Furs. So there's lots of trees and lots of wildlife just even in a regular neighborhood. And it's a beautiful it's a beautiful place. That's for sure. You can just just driving around town. You can see Mount Hood and you can see usually you can see Mount St. Helens. Uh, and every now and then you can see Mount Adams, but that's kind of far
0: away. I love it. The nice thing about that is quite a ways away from wall and broad streets, which is uh, great, I think, when it comes to markets. I and mean, even in Los Angeles, which is, you know, world, global, large city, you know, it feels like the main business here is still media, uh, which is nice and refreshing. So anyway, I've known you for a long time, but a lot of the listeners may, uh, your name may be new to them. How does, it, how does a guy that, that one point, love just playing guitar. End up in the end up in the financial markets. What was your background? Give us a little origin story, Dan Ferris origin story.
1: The the Dan Ferris origin story was, um, I uh, let's see, where do I start? Well, just start with just before I was uh, I got into the, the business of of giving people financial advice for a living. I had kind of dabbled around in the mining stocks, and I had actually been a subscriber to some newsletters that are published by the folks that I've been working for for the last 21 years. And, you know, stuff like old guys like Doug Casey and Jim Davidson and uh, what's his name? Adrian Day, you know, sort of the old guard gold bug guys. So, I, you know, I knew of the existence of this company and I had actually made a little bit of money in gold stocks after reading some Doug Casey stuff. And, but I was, you're right. I was kind of screwing around in Baltimore playing the guitar at a place called Zameen Bean Cafe and other places, little, little joints around Baltimore, just playing classical guitar gigs and doing various things, doing local theater and stuff. And I, I, I actually, I hurt my back, was what happened. And it kind of slowed me down. I, I had quit my job. I forget what I was doing. Oh, I was like waiting tables or something. And I quit my job because I had made some money in gold stocks and I was going to practice and get, try to get into the, um, enter the guitar foundation of America competition, which at that time, I think they held it in the LA area. They held it in Southern California and I was practicing like crazy and playing lots of guitar and I was doing pretty well. I was like, wow, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll get past the initial round of this thing. And then one night we were at the mean Bean Cafe and I had played guitar and I knew the owner and another friend of mine was there and we, we used to close the place down and lock the door and raid the, you know, the owner was there. So she let us raid the wine cabinet and stuff and, and we cranked the stereo up and we were dancing around and I was making people follow me around the couch like doing this crazy dance, you know. And I was a skinny young guy, and they were all like kind of older, heavier people. So I thought it was funny to hop on one leg. By the end of that night, I had a searing pain in my lower back, and I had my first of two back surgeries one year later. And of course, I was screwed for the competition. And I remember recuperating out at my folks' house. I wasn't staying in my apartment after the operation. And and I said, you know, I'm in my mid-30s here. Maybe I'll just be like a regular person and try to get some type of a job, you know, because the competition, it really just put, took the wind out of my sails for music, you know, and changed the whole, like, I didn't get to play guitar. I didn't play guitar for most of a year and a half. So that caused me to think twice about it. And I wound up, Writing a letter, I had this friend of mine who lived across the street from me and I was sitting in her kitchen and she had just gotten a job at this publishing company and she brought home all these newsletters and said, these, this is what we publish. I was like, I know this guy, that's Doug Casey, blah, blah, blah. And I took, I took them home with me and I wrote Bill Bonner a letter. Bill Bonner, the founder of, of Agora, the publisher. And he actually hired me. He like he tells people that he hired me off the street, he says. <laughs> so that's that's it. That's how I got into all this. Crazy. Well, there's a
0: lesson learned if you're ever at Le Bean Cafe or Zabine Cafe, however you say it, always hop on two feet when you're on the couch, not one. Um, yeah. <laughs> but all right, so gold stocks, I mean, that's an interesting sort of introduction. Had you been interested in investing prior to that or you know, gold this summer twenty nineteen, I you know, most of my listeners we don't talk that much about gold on the podcast and i know you're a big equity guy's now but gold seems to be creeping again up uh, up in price and starting to to bring all the all the bulls out again and what was the sort of transition you start focusing on the mining sector what what was the kind of eventual runway there
1: okay so when i first got hired
0: i did i i had really
1: only The only equities I knew anything about at that point were gold stocks. And to me, I wasn't looking at individual stocks. I had bought a fund that I can barely remember the name. Uh, Back when when, uh, U.S. Global Investors was called United Services, I think they had a fund that was called the World Gold Fund or the Global Gold Fund, something like that. And it had, it was one of the only funds you could buy that actually had the small cap stocks in it because I wanted that juice, that leverage to gold price. And this was in, uh, there, was a, there was a run-up in the mid-90s in gold. And, and this was around that time. That was the first thing, to me, it was a play on gold, a levered play on gold. So I was interested in it more about the commo- I was more interested in the commodity than the equities. But eventually when I was hired by Agora, the first thing I wrote about were natural resources stocks, so it it did affect a transition from you know before before I did this for a living you know to to when I started doing it, totally focused in natural resources and that lasted for a few years and then I started uh,
0: working for Porter Stansbury. You know it's funny because so so often you hear about people and their beginnings in investing and it's almost like every single person is always attracted to the stuff that really moves, I mean for me, it was you know i was I was coming of age in the sort of internet bubble and biotech, you know, and so like everyone everyone gets attracted to the stuff that that really is volatile all over the place, you know we hear it time and time again and you know I think this generation it's probably crypto and uh, who knows what else, but okay, so by the way, did they give you a pen or anything for the 20 year anniversary? I feel like you should have received some sort of you know, jacket or metal or something, 20 years. That's uh that's that's a long time to survive in our world. I think the only
1: person who noticed was Porter, and that was because I wrote it in the digest and hundreds of thousands of
0: people saw yeah, it. He was, yeah. the
1: only one, he was the only one who noticed.
0: Yeah. It's like that's like, you know, saying, like on my birthday yesterday, <laughs> you know, just making sure that everyone gets it. Okay, so you know, I've been following your writing for a long time. I know kind of the answers to some of these questions, but would love for the audience to kind of work through it talk to me a little bit about what your framework for thinking about investing is now. And you can take this question as, feel free to tell it as a evolution from you know the mid-90s forward, or just talk about it now. How do you think about the world of investing? And then we can start to get into some concepts and ideas and themes and stocks and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah. So I do have some thoughts about just the evolution of a few bottom-up more than a few bottom up value investors or bottom up fundamental type investors that i've met and a lot of them you know as you say they they started looking at things that move you know they started looking at the biotechs or you know there was maybe a bull run in gold or some other thing and the, and they got into it the way you and i did and then of course it's availability bias the the data point that you know anything about is the price in front of you so you spend all your time believing and thinking that, well, there's some way to predict where this is going to go. And I'm going to learn to read charts so that I can always predict and be right 100% of the time. And, and then, you know, hopefully you evolve past that. And rather than trying to go through all the steps, eventually some, some of us wind up where I am, which is a, certainly a bottom-up, fundamental, one company at a time kind of an investor, but who has a powerful, has developed by experience and mistakes, a powerful respect for the effect of cycles. So th- really it's mostly the bottom of fundamentals, but because we, uh, in the newsletter that we write extreme value, we, we definitely buy value when and where we find it, no matter what the overall market is doing. But we're, we're more aware now of, of cycles, cycles in industries and, and the overall market cycle. So, you know, there's there's that piece of it. And when it gets down to individual companies, we made it we made a bit of a change um, from the traditional way, as you know, as maybe even listeners know, the, the traditional way of establishing the intrinsic value, which is what value investors do. Right. They figure out what something is worth by figuring out the present value of all the future cash they're going to get out of a business or a, or a particular um, asset or something and then they establish an intrinsic value and they like to pay less than that the traditional way of doing that is something called discounted cash flow and without going into all the technical details basically to do this model you got you, you got to predict things you got to just project revenues at least revenues margins you know maybe tax rates a few other things and you wind up with cash flows and uh it just it irked me because I don't know the future, Meb. <laughs> and I don't know anybody who does. So sitting around projecting, you know, into the future like that, it just always irked the crap out of me. And I didn't know what to do about it. And then I read, we were we you and I were talking earlier about Michael Mobison. I I I read Michael Mobison and Alfred Rappaport's book called Expectations Investing. And Again, without, I don't want to get into all the hairy, ugly details of it, but the basic idea is you plug in all that stuff instead of projecting all those numbers and discounting them back to the present, you just, you plug in whatever future projections you need in order to equal the current share price. And then you look at all the stuff you plugged in for the future and say, well, is that overly optimistic or is it overly pessimistic or right down the middle? And if it's overly pessimistic and you like the business, you may have a, a decent investment on your hands.
0: Well, in, in and in a great example of that, as he talks about, I imagine a real world example today would probably be like Beyond Meat, which just hit, I think, 13 billion in market cap today, yeah. you know, and, and it has 50 million or 100 million in sales. And then what what Michael would do is say, all right, how many companies of this size you know, have then grown revenues by 25%, 50%, 100% for this long to justify that sort of, you know, valuation, you know, and maybe it's like, yeah, this has happened a 1000 times before, or in some cases, you're like, no, they literally have to be the most successful company in history to just hit expectations. And it's a a really nice um, sort of anchoring framework uh, to think about it my my favorite example I don't know who to to attribute this quote to so apologies whoever said this but it's, it's talking about discounted cash flows and it's like it's like the hubble telescope if you change the inputs like if you move it an inch you're looking at an entirely different galaxy and it's and that's kind of i think to your point one of the challenges with that is it's i people feel like they're running it out to the fourth decimal place but you, you can really kind of come up with any input you want or output you want of that model just by, uh, you know, turning a few dials.
1: Exactly. And that thing you described, I think it was uh, where, where you were describing how Mobison might think about this, you know, where he'd look at other companies, how often has this sort of thing happened where the growth has gone through the roof like this and it's turned out well. So that is actually, to, to our way of doing things, that's a discrete piece. You know, that's what Thaler, I think Richard Thaler calls the outside view, right? So, and Mobison, I, I think I really did learn about that from Mobison as well, the outside view where, you know, your bottom up world, you can get, you, you can start to think there's nothing else in the world, but this one company you're looking at, right? Uh, and you're looking at how it does versus its competitors and, and not much else. But then there's that outside view, and we've learned a little bit to start thinking about that, too. And, and it doesn't take a lot of thinking, does it, to really just get that extra data point? How many companies have grown like this, or whatever it is? And, and you can really – it's like a razor. It can really help eliminate possibilities for you. Uh, and I think in the case of Beyond Meat – yeah, some possibilities are definitely eliminated by doing that kind of analysis.
0: Well, I did a I did a um poll on Twitter a while back. I'm not sure if it was before, or right around when it public. And the funny thing was it was like seventy five percent of the people prefer the impossible burger, but apparently the beyond sausage is the is the is their best tasting one. But we got a vegan and vegetarian in our office, so we're gonna have to do a taste test here. But I, I think the impossible I'm a big fan of the impossible burger. Anyway. So, okay. So I interrupted you. So we're talking about valuation frameworks, talking about some of these ideas. Feel free to keep rolling with that. So how do you kind of incorporate some of these concepts into uh, the investment process that, uh, that you've grown to get comfortable with?
1: Well, let's see. So I described the basic, the basic change that we've made and the basic thing that we do. There are like these five metrics though that we still, that are kind of traditional value metrics that one of the things that people learn to do as value investors too is they start screening they start out screening for valuation they're looking for cheap stocks but after a while you know you get burned on a few dozen of these and and you you start screening for good businesses and things you can keep on your radar screen so we like we have these five what we call the five financial clues which is basically a screen and you know it's not like everything that this screen puts out it's a screen so it, not everything that it puts out is gold right you you know it's it's the beginning of analysis not the end but it we find these five things often go with the really really great businesses so gushing free cash flow consistent margins and it could be consistently razor thin like I think Costco's net at, at net margin over time has been like you know one and a half percent. And the, uh, I think the gross margins around 12 or 13%, something like that. And, and it just consistently, but obviously it is a wonderful business. You know, they, they crank, they turn a lot of inventory, you know, so just as long as it's consistent. And the reason for that is that we think in capitalism, a consistent margin should attract competition of some kind and, and be winnowed away. But if it's consistent over time, they're obviously doing some, they're competing well, you know, that could be a, a really good clue that they're competing well, simply put. So the next one is a good balance sheet. There are different types of good balance sheets. Basically, we put them in two camps. The, the financial fortresses where you get um, more cash than debt so they can pay off. I think Microsoft, I looked at them the other day. They can pay off all their debts and still have like 57 or $58 billion, with a B in cash, which is amazing, right? And, and Apple is a similar story, um, even larger. So there's that, or there is the, the balance sheet where maybe they have, you know, more debt than cash or substantially more, but you know, it could be a business like Walmart that turns over so much product and the cash just comes in the door, you know, every split second of every day for 24 hours globally. And, and they have decent, you know, interest coverage from their earnings. So you know, it's, it's okay that they don't have a mountain of cash to offset debt. So we look for those. And then we also look for how they handle the prospect of a category that we generally call shareholder rewards, which you could quibble with the title, but we won't, we don't need to do that. Just dividends and share repurchases. And we found that really good businesses will maybe even, maybe not even consistently but good businesses that we found can, can buy back shares at, rather opportunistically at times when they're cheap. I mean, sometimes, you know, you get a calamity like 2008 or something, and everybody's afraid the whole world's going to cave in. No, you know, everybody stops the buybacks, right? But over time, you know, if we get a, you know, like an early 2016, late 2015 period or something like that, or last fall or something like that and you find a company that's doing some buybacks taking advantage of it maybe you're looking at a good capital allocator and we like dividends too a consistent dividend payer and we've learned i've learned to think about dividends a little differently i realized like most businesses they do one thing right they they sell one you know it's a retail company or they make one kind of a you know product or something and there's only if they're really successful there's only so much cash they can make use of back in the business so we want them to regularly get that cash out of their hands because, you know, when you get a lot of cash in your pocket, it burns a hole in your pocket and maybe you get used to making some bad decisions. So, you know, you, we, we like companies that have a really good business where they invest all they can and then the surplus is paid out to shareholders. And I don't mind that it's double taxed. You know, Warren Buffett has a thing about that. That doesn't bother me one bit. And then the, the fifth thing is return on equity. So as long as a company isn't too terribly levered, this can be a good indicator of over time, over a period of time, if it's a consistently decent return on equity, like, um, you know, maybe 20% or higher, um, this is like, you know, return on equity is like if a business were a bank account, return on equity is what you make on all the money you leave in it, right? So over time, and this is, you know, it's a Charlie Munger thing. You know, like returns on capital, returns on invested capital. You could use almost there's a few metrics you could use in that respect, but it it gets you generally the same place over a long period of time. So we you know we we make all that a part of the a part of the uh, kind of business screening process, and you know then at some point you just have to look at what they do and decide if you think it has a future or not. Right, it's a qualitative decision and I think of all the things that help us quantitatively with the qualitative part of figuring out if the management team has their head screwed on right and all that, probably the the acquisitions they make, the investments they make, how they handle the balance sheet. We got really attracted to Sturm Ruger a while back, long while back, because the management changed and they started taking cash out of the working capital, which was bloated. And, you know, that can be a real neat thing. It's like a one-time effect, but it can reflect – if that, as long as that management stays in charge, it can reflect a much tighter, leaner kind of view on how to run the business, and it can be good over time.
0: A lot of what you talked about are nice because they're great as disqualifiers too. It's you know, it's great to pick the cheap companies that are good stewards of capital, but also you're avoiding the ones that are consistently diluting you or expensive, and so it just kind of puts you in the the right general. Quadrant of kind of where to to look around for decent opportunities. You know, I love your framing of the shareholder rewards idea because it's so funny with a political discourse today about everyone hating on buybacks. And then Jason Zweig wrote an amazing piece where he's like, you know, it was funny back in 70 years ago or just in a different time earlier in the 20th century, he said that the big concern was the opposite it was that the government and all of the populace was up in arms because they didn't want the CEOs to hold on to the money because the CEOs would just empire build and waste it and acquire other companies and pay themselves tons of money. so it's like the exact opposite today where you're like you know the the discourse is so uh, the politicians are you know they 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 want to argue for whatever probably will help them get elected and stay in power. But it's so funny how it's changed in so little time.
1: Yeah, actually, that is an interesting debate, isn't it? People have this crazy, weird idea that, well, you're buying back your shares, so you're not, you know, they use these various phrases, you're not investing in America, you're not investing in your people, you're not doing this or that. And it's a little, it's a little goofy, because if you are buying back your shares, you've already done all of that. And you've done it so unbelievably well that you've got all this excess capital. And to say, well, you you, you know, you should use that excess to, uh, you know, pay people more or whatever it is, build daycare or, you know, it depends. You talk to Bernie Sanders, he'll tell you what, what they should do
0: with it, right? Politicians will be politicians. So, okay, that's a good starting point. And then, you know, you've, you've probably been following names for a long time. You probably have your book of names that you kind of... Keep in the the bullpen, but you know what's the next step? How do you move from say you know something being either attractive on the screen to actually becoming a recommendation? Uh, are there any particular catalysts? Is it just getting comfortable with it? How uh, how do you think about the uh, actually tossing these into your portfolio?
1: Okay, so let's take a current example. I haven't we haven't thought a lot about this. We're just, you know, just kind of spitballing it between myself and, my, and the analyst, Mike Barrett, who works with me on extreme value. And I'm looking at Boeing here because it, you know, it was I think the peak share price was like 440 and it's in the three low threes or something. At this point, you know, there's probably still more shoes to drop. But the first thing I do is, you know, I ask Mike. He, Mike is sort of the keeper of the, the price implied expectations model that I described earlier that we got from Michael Movison's book. And I said, you know, what is, uh, and it's price implied expectations, PIE, pie. So I say, you know, what's, what does the pie say about Boeing? And, you know, indeed, of course, the share price bakes in a fair amount of pessimism. Now you look at the recent quarter and see the revenue down 30 percent or so, <laughs> you know, maybe there's a reason for that, right? The 737 max, was their absolute best selling product of all time. And now it's grounded worldwide. You can't sell it. So that's really bad for the business. And now the Department of Justice has expanded the inquiry to the 787 Dreamliner. So, you know, maybe we're not (laughs) interested yet, but we could get interested at some point if we thought that maybe there was a you know, point of maximum extreme, worse than this pessimism. And that, you know, maybe they maybe they add another aircraft or two to the inquiry. And then that really, you know, ticks the market off and the stock goes down even more. Or, you know, there's big fines to pay. They've taken a charge. I think it's around five. I'm going to say five or six billion. I know it's five point something. I'm sorry. I don't know the number. But just say five billion for compensating the 737 Max customers with discounts and and cash payments and various things. Who knows if there isn't more of that to come, right? There could be another one of those to come. So it's kind of early days, and you can take your time and just see how this thing unfolds. But we try we follow the the you know, Ben Graham has these principles. Ben Graham, the father of value investing, the father of security analysis. And he's got this thing in, in his book, Security Analysis, right from the very first edition. And he said, you know, the the untrained security buyer should never put money into a low-grade enterprise at, on any terms. And, and in that, I would also say a troubled enterprise like Boeing. And, you know, the trained security analyst, I don't know how trained I am because I taught myself all this stuff without anyone else teaching me. Um, but I have learned certainly from others. But the trained security analyst should find, he, he should be able to find almost anything is cheap enough at a given price and way too expensive at another. So so Boeing will can get cheap enough for us. Right now, we're just, it's early days. We know we don't have to be in a hurry, but we'll keep running the pie, you know, expectations versus what's in the news and what's in the you know, what's in the press releases and various things and what the de- Department of Justice is up to. And and so that could go from radar screen to to a pick one day if it gets cheap enough and we think the outlook isn't as bad as what the share price projects.
0: Radar screen, no pun intended.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> on, it's on the radar screen. It's an aircraft company.
0: <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about the general... Sort of portfolio is there? Is there a certain amount of names you typically keep in uh, the the bucket? How often are you holding these? Is it like a couple months? Is it a couple years? Talk to us a little bit about the way that the way that that process looks, and then we'll dive into maybe some more names.
1: Okay, so right now in extreme value we have I can count them right in front of me here. Let's see three. 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 names. And three of those are from the, we recommended Dow DuPont pre spin. And so now we have the post spin Dow, DuPont, and Cortiva Agriscience. So there are 17 names altogether. And, you know, we could go in, we could probably go into the 20s. We could get close to 30 names, I think, and be comfortable. But the average days held is about 1,100 at this point. So, yeah, I mean, for a newsletter, it's like an eternity, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> newsletters are, you know, it's like, wow, maybe 1,000 hours, <laughs> but, but not a not 1,000 days. So, yeah, I mean, we, when I think of equity, it's, like it's permanent capital in my mind. I was thinking about, you know, how hard it is to sell, right? Buying is, figuring out what to buy is almost like the easy part compared to what to sell. Uh, you know when to sell and i was thinking you know i don't know how to sell and i don't really think anybody knows how to sell warren buffett doesn't know how to sell because equ- the, the nature of equity is this long term commitment where you where you buy this business and you know if it's run well it pays you for a long long time and you keep this capital at work in something that the rest of the world finds useful so i think that's partially explains why we wind up a longer uh holding period than the average newsletter has
0: well but it's you know it's funny cuz there's so many different ways to think about this i think the way that most you know individuals in retail often get sucked into is they buy for all could be good reasons but the sell process is like the final one percent of the entire process that they put effort to, but probably is equally, if not more, important to where they just say, you know, I'll I'll sell, and and usually get caught up in some sort of emotional situation, right? Where, uh, and I know maybe uh, a, a lot of folks at your crew, and I think you've talked about this too, thinking in terms of having potentially uh, one idea being. Trailing stops. Uh, Another idea I heard. uh, uh, This is a private equity investor, so it's a little different. But he he basically says, "Look, my goal is to do like coffee can to essentially never sell these positions, which is another interesting way to think about it as well, because it goes back to that old sort of Buffett. If you only had you know ten bullets in your chamber, you know how would you allocate them? And and knowing that you may never be able to sell them, so talk to us a little bit about how you think about selling. What's the What's the framework? What's the evolution? How, to, how do you put it into practice?
1: You know, over the years, I've made the classic value investor error about selling, right? We, we assess these things and then we, we say, okay, it's cheap enough to buy. It's a good business. We'll take it. And then we sell them when they get expensive. And that's been a mistake. Now, there's two things here. You know, n- none of this is easy because I'm telling you this at the end of a pretty serious... Or not at the end, but after ten years of a of a pretty serious run up in equities, so any decision to sell a decent business in the last five ten years has been a bad one. But I even so, I think you know I, I recommended Microsoft in like 2006, I want to say, and it was twenty dollars or twenty five or something like that, and I think we sold it in the 40s, and it's like 120 or 30 or something now. And I realized that's just a cash-gushing business that is embedded in a billion people's lives, at least. And I'm talking about Microsoft Office there. It, you know, It's deeply embedded in our lives, and, and I had no business selling the darn thing. And I was just guilty of uh, that value investor, this thing looks kind of expensive to me, selling. And I've done that a few times with things that proceeded to just continue to compound and compound and go up. So we try not to make that mistake. And we've held on. I've held on to automatic data processing, ADP, since I think it's October of 2008. That one's still in there. I've got Johnson & Johnson in there. That's been in for eons. I don't even know how long. I've got a little company called Altius Minerals that's been in since March of 2009. Johnson & Johnson since October 2010. So, I, you know, I've I've kind of learned... Learned the hard way to keep holding on to some of these things that keep doing what you sort of bought them to do. And, you know, again, there you're asking me like when to sell, and I'm telling you, well, not yet, (laughs) if it's a really good business that continues to do what you bought it to do. Otherwise, Meb, I have made an enormous change. The biggest change I've made is that indeed looking at research that shows that if Extreme Value had used trailing stops, it would have gotten better results. We 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 use them. We don't use them on every pick, but we do use them. So that's you know that's just uh, something that we do now that helps us exit in a really kind of cold mechanical fashion, which is probably not a bad idea for a, for us, you know, emotional human beings.
0: Well, it's it's a good. I mean, not just from a systematic standpoint, but I feel like an, an emotional standpoint as well, where it's just a good cleansing. Sort of, you know, we, we all become so attached to everything we own, but in particular securities, and you start cheering for them, and you start, you know, trying to only find confirming evidence on whatever your position may be, all day long. And and you know, as a as an analyst and PM, our job should actually be mostly doing the opposite, you know, trying to find holes in the stories. But we all become totally totally different approach once once you own something than once you don't. Um, listeners, uh, if you don't believe me, go, go look around your garage. I guarantee you, you wouldn't buy all that junk tomorrow if you didn't (laughs) own it. Mine. And I'm just as guilty of that. My garage is a mess. Okay. So let's talk about a few names. You mentioned, you know, one of my favorite things about some of your writing is you combine, you know, some names that people would have been familiar with and have heard of Boeing, J&J, Mr. Softy. But but there's a fair amount of names that probably people have never heard of. You just mentioned some mineral company. What's the thesis there? You've owned it for a long time. What's going on?
1: Aldius Minerals. So originally, um, I bought that. We, we recommended it in uh, what did I say? March of two thousand nine, and it was a it was a Graham and Dodd net net, meaning that their net cash and liquid assets, net cash and equities. You know, they had m- more net net liquid assets than market cap and I was like well you know if they've got seven or eight bucks worth of cash and and the thing is trading for six or seven I mean how bad can it be? Plus they at that time they had this one royalty that was paying all their expenses. So and then they had a portfolio of these exploration prospects. So here's this mineral company their bills are paid they've got a ton of cash and they're sitting on all these potential, you know, multi baggers. And so I thought, well, okay, this is good. Then over time, I got to know the management and I saw their behavior through the full cycle. And I just, I'm, I'm amazed at them. In, in 2007 or 8 or so, they sat down and made a list of a dozen or so assets, royalty assets, that they wanted to, to buy in the mineral, you know, mineral royalties on copper mines and iron ore mines and things like that. And they waited until 2014, five years to buy the first one. And when you see that kind of patience, and I know the people inside the business were bugging the CEO and the founder, Brian Dalton, they were saying, are you sure we shouldn't buy something now? And he was saying, nope, not yet. Don't worry, the market will turn. And, of course, the mining stock market turned in a big way uh, after gold topped out at, uh, you know, 1900. And all that stuff just started getting obliterated and got obliterated for, you know, uh, really four solid years there and and then some. And, you know, on, on the way down towards the bottom, that's when they started putting money to work. And they bought a portfolio of royalties which is there's potash royalties. There's actually coal royalties in there. And the potash royalties are are just a thing of wonder because the resource, the potash, they have royalties basically on 20% of the global potash production. And it's all in, in Canada, in Saskatchewan. And so it's really high quality stuff. The mines are enormous. The resource, some of it in these mines, there's like, Literally 17 or 1800 years at current production rates worth of this stuff. And if they expand the mine, you know, it can wind up even more. So it's really weird to think that you can have this asset that's probably, you know, the models on this thing probably don't go out more than 20 years. And it's got 1700 years of runway ahead of it. You know, so I'm pretty sure that some of that value is just not in the price and the sentiment in potash has been poor because the prices were kind of pushed down. But, you know, the the, the they, they own just a royalty on this, so they don't have to pay for any of the upgrades on the mine. You know, you may you buy that royalty and you're done investing and, and a royalty is a beautiful thing. It's a it's a real estate interest. It's off the top, the revenue. So, you know, you. You don't have to worry you don't have to pay your share of the the wages and the you know keeping the lights on and all that stuff and you don't have to pay your share of capital needed to expand the mine or anything else or maintain it so a royalty you get a good royalty and it's just a beautiful thing and that potash those potash royalties are beautiful things and I think that the cash from that alone you know could really it could attract a lot more investors than it currently is people are very enamored of precious metals royalties but you know, what's a, you're lucky if you find a gold mine that's more, that's going to make it more than t- 10 or 12 years. And these things are going to be around multiple mines for hundreds of years. Some of them like a few hundred or 500, 900, you know, much more than a thousand. Just numbers like that. It's crazy. So it's a really cool asset. And, and they bought others. You know, they have a bunch of royalties. They have iron ore and um, copper and a few other things. And the latest guidance, I don't even have it in front of me. I think it's push, it's, it's up in the mid-70 millions a year. And the market cap of this thing is like, actually, let's. as I'm speaking to you, Meb, I'm going to type in and check the market cap right this minute. Um, because I think it's around 400. It's less than 500, I think, these days. Canadian. It trades in Toronto, ticker symbol ALS. Oh, 550 Canadian, sorry. So, yeah. 550, you know, your single digit multiple of royalties and and, you know, gold royalties, precious metals royalties routinely change hands at like 20 times, 20 times royalties or, you know, 15 to 20. So this thing has yet to really get the recognition I feel that it deserves, but it's begun to to generate the cash flow that, um, you know, we always hoped it would. And there are many more. They have dozens and dozens of prospects, mineral prospects. And on each one of these things, they take a royalty. And, you know, maybe they'll put shares into a public company and they'll own a piece of the public company. Plus, they'll get the royalty. So, you know, if the thing does well, they'll have these shares that they can sell. And then they'll always have the royalty if the mine actually goes into production. Most of them won't go into production. But the thing is, all you need... I mean, to move the needle on a 500 million market cap stock, one royalty can be worth 50, 100, 200 million. So the day, you know, that that one of these mines goes into production, you know, this thing will get a big lift. Yes. And until then, the downside is minimal because it's so cheap versus the royalties that it has
0: now. What's interesting about that is imagine being that CEO... And having that sort of patience, I mean, that like most CEOs, you know, operate on the time frame of quarters, maybe on on you know you know ten Qs and ten Ks. Certainly, five years waiting on on some of these projects. I mean, that's that's a lifetime for for some CEOs. That's a hard uh, hard career risk to to do. But it's what you want, you know. It's same thing as a money manager. You know, you want people that have. A long-term time horizon, rather than chasing uh, chasing deals that may not be as economical. That's a really fun idea, and it's interesting because of the size, but also th- that business model. Like you mentioned, um, the streaming and royalties is a fascinating world. That if you put a, you can even put together a portfolio of those sort of companies and ideas. I think is is pretty interesting. I don't think there's any ETFs yet in the U.S. on that. We'll have to look into it. You got time for another idea?
1: Actually, I want to talk about that one just a little bit more because I want to emphasize the point that in mining, of course, the mining industry, it's a highly capital intensive, you know, low margin, highly cyclical nightmare, right? It's really owning and operating a mine is kind of a terrible business. Not kind of. It is a terrible business. But Altius Minerals is on the two ends of that that make so much sense and are so highly capital efficient they, you know, spend small amounts of money on, you know, a couple of dozen mineral prospects that they can do things with, you know, very capital efficient. And they also, you know, make these investments in royalties, which once you make that investment, like we said, you're you're golden if you get a really good one. So it's it's really cool because here's this huge, this cyclical industry that's kind of ugly, but They've got the really attractive parts of it under one roof, and they do them both very well. I'll tell you a little hint if people want to know something about how to identify a good prospect generator. The prospect generator model is is really wonderful. You do some original work, some original geological work. You stake out a prospect, usually for very little money. Then you get a partner and you get them to spend money and earn in, the, you know, a majority share of it. And, you know, it can wind up working out very well if they actually can develop it to the point where somebody wants to buy it and make a mine out of it. But a key thing to know about this model, and one of the foibles that companies get into, is that they fall in love with, with one of their prospects, right? And they, they wind up with kind of a flagship project that is a dead giveaway that they don't understand the model. The model is, do the work, stake the prospect, spend a little bit of money, maybe punching a hole or two in it, enough to attract a a partner who wants to spend a lot more money to punch a lot more holes in it. And And then you move on, right? Do your deal, move on. Stake it out, do your deal, move on. And when you see a company that has very few prospects, And it's kind of hawking one of them as a flagship. It's a red flag. They're not doing the model right.
0: Is part of that because they're almost gambling, or there's like a catastrophic risk of that one deal not working out? Or what's the main worry there?
1: Yeah, the main worry there is that you have to understand that this is a you know it's an underwriting situation, right? You you want to underwrite. Uh, as many, you know, you're writing insurance, you you, wanna, you want as many, uh, you know, people, drivers of cars or owners of homes as possible, and you never want to violate your underwriting parameters. And, and it's the same way, you know, if you have, if you're putting all your capital, if you're putting more capital into one project, I mean, you're, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's even, you know, in a portfolio, right? You have one stock in your portfolio, it's a little riskier than if you have 20 of them, usually, you know, generally speaking, right? So it's the same thing. You're putting all this money into this highly risky thing and, and all the money you put in, it doesn't make it any less highly risk, highly risky, right? W- one in 3000 of these prospect, you know, these, these mineral prospects a year is going to become a mine. <laughs> so
0: one in 3000, keep that in mind. You know what I'm saying? interesting that, that that world is so fascinating to me but I am 100% the dumb money there so I, I love I love uh, as a spectator following the entire space of natural resources but I, I I am absolutely not and that's a world that in many ways you know I think is' defined by people like yourself who you know know the space and and you know can know some of the operators or at least people that do and the business intricacies because uh, it is certainly a minefield if you don't because nothing noth- for some reason nothing attracts shady people more than uh, certain industries and people love a natural resources world for some reason. So I love that I love that idea because it's unique, it's slightly different. It's a great business model. It's almost more like a a hedge fund or venture capital firm or financing sort of vehicle versus a traditional, like you said, uh, exploration company. Any, uh, we got time for maybe another idea. Anything uh, else that's either uh, particular interesting to you now or that you think is unique and different or something that uh, you're, uh, you're scratching your head about? Anything come to mind?
1: Let's see. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about a couple of things. First of all, I want to brag about Starbucks. We picked this thing last August. It's up almost 90% and it had a good day today. So... <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, and, and that one, it was just very simple. We thought it was a great business. You know, it's, it's got a lot of customer loyalty. And, and we thought that people were too pessimistic on the business because they know how mature it is in the United States. And I asked Mike to run it through the price ex- expectations model. And, and one of the ways he did that, it was like the market was saying, it's just impossible for this thing to grow in the next four or five years. And we thought that was silly because they're building coffee shops in China, and the competition is not nearly as good as people think it is. That company Luckin Coffee just doesn't do as well as Starbucks. Um, Starbucks knows how to make money running these things, and Luckin hasn't really figured it out yet.
0: And still, in still a country of largely tea drinkers, I, you know, but I feel like once you have, as someone who probably drinks a pot a morning habit. You know, once you come in with the hard stuff, it just seems like tea doesn't stand a chance over the next I, few I years.
1: <laughs> That's right. They're going to start mainlining this stuff, man. But a Starbucks, one of the things people don't realize maybe in the U.S., unless they get over there, as I have in the past, I guess it's been a couple of years now, is that Starbucks is like an iPhone. You know, people like to walk around with their Starbucks cup and Luck and Coffee is like, eh who cares? You know, it's like Nokia or something, but that Starbucks, you know, these people are becoming wealthy and, and status, you know, they like to signal just like every, they're human beings, right? Um, they love luxury goods and they love Starbucks and they, and they love all kinds of things I never would have get. They love Kentucky fried chicken for God's sakes. And a friend of mine, I, I go to the value value X Vale is a, like an invite, one of these invitation only kind of things of value investors that we do every year in vale colorado and this guy pitched yum china which owns kentucky fried chicken and i and he said you know biggest restaurant company in china and people love kentucky fried chicken and that just bowled me over i was like oh it's kind of like saying you know people in china love the u.s flag or something it's just like not expected but anyway i'm bragging about starbucks but I did want to mention dollar general, which I think is a really neat business because you know, they, they, they just remind me of Walmart. Um, They run these dollar stores. Actually, the average, most of the things are are $10 or under, you know, inflation and all that. And they run smaller stores, you know, like 50,000 square feet or so. So Walmart runs these behemoth stores with, you know, 150,000 SKUs, 150,000 items on the shelves, and Dollar General runs a smaller store in in mostly um, in a lot of rural and and kind of more depressed communities, and they've got that market like that's how Walmart started out that way. You know, Sam Walton was like, I don't care, I, I want I want people in rural areas to get a good deal and a good selection of merchandise, and the big companies don't want to come out here; they don't think it's worth it. So I'm going to do it. And then, of course, Walmart became this giant thing and they had to go into everywhere they could go, you know, every market they could go. And Dollar General's getting like that. They're getting big enough to be that way. But I just I'm fascinated by the the way they thrive in these poor communities and the way they you know, they have this like really bare bones real estate strategy where they you know, you walk into one of these places and it's like, wow. You know, you didn't spend any money on the on the building, did you or the fixtures or anything? (laughs) And it kind of takes me back to, you know, the early days of Walmart. And I think it has a similar I think it has a similar future ahead of it. If they continue to run it the way they do and they're growing it quickly, which which they can do at this point in their in their history.
0: Well, it seems like that business model, it's like a duopoly or like there's only like two or three of those that seem to dominate the entire market. Which usually ends up being in a pretty good place if you only have a few, of those, uh, a few of those companies really competing.
1: Yeah, that's right. And when you get into some of the places where there are some of these tiny little communities that have a thousand people in them, there's not room for a second
0: one. Interesting. So look, I, I got another two pages of questions, but we've already kept you for an hour. So I wanna I wanna definitely ask you about a few more things. But listeners, if you want to hear Dan go on some of his famous rants or talk about Tesla, or there's about ten other things that he loves to talk about, definitely go check out his podcast, Stansbury Investor Hour. But but Dan, you talk a lot about historical books. And so I know you're a big time reader. Part of that may just be you're stuck in the woods of Oregon and Washington and, you know, there's nothing else to do. But you, you cert- I love listening to you talk about books because so many times it's very specific. Like you're like, you need to read page 20 of this and chapter eight of this. I'll give you free reign to this question. You can take it one of two ways. Either would love to hear about some of the most influential books that have really made an impact on you and continue to do so. And or you can answer both these you know, what are some of the greatest books over the past few years that you've thought uh, have been uh, particularly uh, great?
1: I'll take on both of those, Meb. First one is the influential books. And, and, you know, you told me, like, I refer to specific chapters and pages and things. And certainly chapter 20 of The Intelligent Investor is something that I have, like, a little alert on my phone to read it once a month. And I admit that I don't, like, sometimes the alert comes up and I, like, dismiss it and don't read it. But But most of the time I do. And it's called um, margin of safety as the central concept of investment. And that idea, look, I'm only human. So what we do in the the markets, it's an unnatural act. It's like jumping out of an airplane, you know, parachute or not. It's an unnatural act. You know, the people who seem to be naturally good at it aren't normal. And it requires it's like lifting weights. You know, you got to work out and you got to have some discipline. And that helps me have discipline and focus on the right thing. And there's like Graham has his four business-like principles in there. And, the, you know, it's simple stuff. Know your business and, you know, run your business yourself or have it run by somebody you trust and, you know, a couple others. I can't believe that I can't remember all four of them off the top of my head. That's <laughs> amazing. So that's a that's been a big influential book to me just because I keep going back to it, you know. The other big one. For me, as an investor and an analyst and stuff, it was Howard Mark's most important thing. And I just I always chuckle about the title because Mark said he was in, you know, he says that he he gets in these meetings with clients and he winds up saying the most important thing is, you know, cycles. And then the next client, he'll say the most important thing is value. the most important thing is risk. The most important thing is, you know, whatever the next thing is. And, and so he said, you wound up with 18 most important things. So there's like 18 things in this book. And it it just underscores how complex the process really is. And um, I, I like it when people don't try to hide the complexity of something. And yet Marx has taken each of those pieces that together constitute a complex undertaking and he's got some really good, simple principles and ideas about them that can help you. It's really quite a tour de force, in my opinion. Uh, it's called The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks. So those two like are really huge for me. Another one I'll mention real quick is a book called The Elements of Investing by uh, Charlie Ellis and Burton Malkiel. And I, I opened this book up maybe six or eight years ago, whenever it came out initially, I forget. But... The first chapter, it's a real simple book like anybody could read. It's for beginning investors. And it was the one book that started in the right place. The first chapter was about saving money. And I realized that the discipline of saving money, it it gets into everything you'll ever do as an investor for the rest of your career as an investor. It's amazing the way that discipline informs you and shapes you if you do it right. And and that, too, is like a muscle. You just have to keep doing it and keep working out or you're going to get flabby.
0: Well, and I think that one of the best hacks, as we've learned over the past few decades with all the behavioral evidence, is it's almost like you have to automate it. You know, people, if you have the donut and or the piece of pizza in the refrigerator, like you're going to eat it. So, you know, go ahead and throw it in the trash or whatever it may be. Um, you're probably not going to eat it. And so this this concept of automating savings, I think is so important because if you have to go write a check or transfer money to your retirement account every month, look, you may forget it. You may say, oh, well, you know, this came up or I want to go down to the Caribbean. You know, it's easy to get on that hedonic treadmill. But, but you know, putting that stuff on autopilot, I feel like it, it causes people to behave so much better. And we often say this, you know, we say, look, We spend so much time on this podcast, so much time writing papers and books about the investment side. But I honestly believe the decision to save and invest in the first place trumps everything else down the line because you get that uh, time of compounding and and bigger amounts of money. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a biggie.
1: Yeah. And what I do, I do definitely believe in the automation, too. I do that. But I also... Anytime I think of it, I, I will literally put like fifty or a hundred dollars. I'll transfer it from my checking account to wherever I want it in, you know, different accounts that constitute savings for me. And uh, I realized it's 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 not about the amount. It's about the constantly doing of it. It's like practicing a musical instrument. It really is that important just to do it and do it and do it and do it.
0: Well, and it's hard. It's hard for people to think so far into the future. But we were talking about this on an old podcast with Paul, Paul Merriman where you know we said, "Look, if you can compound for fifty years, and you know, sorry for the the old uh, no hairs in the audience, uh, but maybe you can t- think about this in, in regards to your children and grandchildren." But fifty years at ten percent, which is obviously incredibly good returns, but that's a, that's a hundred X return. So, yeah. you know, thinking about, Hey, I'm going to put a thousand bucks, you know, I'll go spend that on a a new TV this year or uh 50 years from now, that's worth a hundred grand. Yep. You know, that that's a really interesting construct on how to think about it. But the challenge of course is avoiding the temptation of getting your claws on it and spending it in the meantime. Right. All right, so we got we got three great classic books and pieces. Feel free to touch on any more that come to mind or uh, anything particularly interesting you've been reading lately.
1: Yeah, so lately. Lately, there's a couple books that are really interesting to me. One of them is by a guy named Emmanuel Derman, who is uh, is a Wall Street quant. He's a physicist who went to Wall Street and made a career. And he's got this book, Models Behaving Badly, which just... It's it's a really deep. The guy is a really deep thinker. It's got it's got stuff from the Bible in there, and it's got his experience with um, being raised in South Africa. So his experience with apartheid, and that's a model, isn't it? That's a model for society, and um, and he he just discusses models from a point of view that we can all understand. Uh, But he does treat the topic specifically of financial models, but he gives you a context that is just rich and beautiful. And the book is only like 200 pages. And he just uh, he bowled me over with what he packed into those 200 pages and how much fun it was to read it. So that's definitely a good one. But I think the one that really, really got me this year was it's called The Formula by Albert Laszlo Barabasi and the subtitle is The Universal Laws of Success. So Barabasi is a network scientist. He actually started out as a physicist too, and he became a network scientist. And basically, he, he studies the ways that human beings interact, and he's got a couple other previous books. One of them is called Links, you know, how everything is, or Linked, and that's how everything is connected. And, you know, that's a sort of an obvious way to think about networks and and another one is called Bursts, which it's all about hidden patterns that basically amount to more more network science, you know, just in our daily lives or whatever. But the formula is about these, what he calls the universal laws of success. And it sounds like a cheesy self-help book, but I promise you it's not. It, it's amazing. It's like, I said, Laszlo, are you telling me that, you know, this stuff is like the law of gravity? Because it's, it's, you know, you're talking about the law of succeeding. And he tells the story of various, you know, sports figures and artists and people who succeeded. And, and he says, yeah, I I genuinely believe that this stuff is not, it's not self-help. It's, it's real laws, like the law of gravity. And I'll just tell you, like, for example, he, he talks about the difference between performance and success, right? So performance, if you look at Tiger Woods, like, let's just say he's the best golfer, I don't know really who is right now, but let's just say it's him. His performance is a little bit better than everybody else, but his success is like much more than everybody else because, you know, he's number one. So he, he attracts disproportionately more attention than the number two guy. And, and so performance. So one of the laws is performance is bounded. Success is unbounded, right? And, and the final law gives me hope like he he, some, some of this stuff, um, you know, there's there's not great news. Like the fourth law is while team success requires diversity and balance, a single individual will always receive credit for the group's achievements. I'm like, oh, boy, that doesn't sound great. But but the fifth law is with persistence, success can come at any time. And he backs all this stuff stuff up with numerous you know, real scientific studies and data. I mean, he has a whole team of people that help him study this stuff. And it's a fascinating book. Yeah,
0: I love it. That one's new to me. I'm gonna put that on my shelf. Uh, Summertime Reads. Dan, what are some more of your resources that you rely on as far as, you know, your process? Um, Anything that come to mind that people can use? It could be uh, websites. It could be uh, conferences. It could be anything that you think is particularly interesting uh, that, that people may find of interest.
1: So for people, I go to YouTube and see if they've, you know, given a talk that's been put up, you know, like when I got into Michael Mobus and went to YouTube and he's all over YouTube, Nassim Taleb all over YouTube. So for people, that's a good one for companies. Most people aren't going to want to hear this, you know, especially individual investors, but Nothing beats going to the SEC website and looking up the company's 10K or 10Q, especially the 10K. That's the first thing you should read because otherwise you're highly in danger of just kind of getting a sexy story and having that influence you way too much. But if the first thing you go to is is the you know this really dry kind of document, and I'm not saying there's no hype in a 10K, right? It, it, it's written by human beings, but... There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, you know, there's there's always a big risk list of risk factors that people should read, and uh, and there's some interesting stuff. I mean, in the in the filing documents, the like the S1, the initial filing documents for the IPO on uh, Beyond Meat that we mentioned earlier. The, there's a fascinating letter in there by by the CEO and founder that I would recommend anyone to read. It's fascinating and it's really. You know it just talks about the state of the meat market and and it's just uh, you know, I won't ruin it for you. it's it's really good. So you know, those are a couple of things that we look at. And you know, we have Bloomberg. I mean, it costs a fortune. Most people don't want to have pay a fortune for it. But you know, other than that, just um, we you know we I thumb through the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal and all that kind of stuff, Bloomberg. Uh, in, or even like crazy places like zero hedge or you know reddit or something you you never know where you're going to find some
0: some ideas yeah it's funny um that reminds me we just had on uh, the podcast the uh you'll probably remember this but if you go back to the late 90s uh the founder of raging bull who's now been running a very successful hedge fund for 15 years after uh, after running kind of the original message board. Uh, I don't know what it is now because yeah, it was kind of like Raging Bull, then Yahoo, maybe Seeking Alpha. I don't even know where people go to to pick huge fights and uh, pump stocks these days, but um, but that's funny. Are, are we going to see you at the, uh, the annual Stansbury Conference this year? I think I'll be attending.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Great.
0: Cool. Well, uh, we'll definitely spend some time there. Um, we're going to start winding down. Last question. Uh, what has been, over the years, your most memorable investment? It could be good, bad, in between, uh, but the first thing that pops to mind, anything that's uh, particularly seared into Dan's brain?
1: Yes, there is one that I will never forget. As soon as somebody said, asked me a question, anything like the one you just did, I think about when I was young man wanting to know how to make money in markets the first thing i ever did was trade commodities and i started with two thousand dollars and i ended up with 268 dollars a number i will never ever forget and uh you know i paid early tuition payments on do
0: you do you recall what commodity you traded was it was it pork bellies was it uh was it orange juice any idea
1: I started out trying to trade, trying to trade Euro dollars actually, you know, basically foreign interest rates, right? Like dollar interest rates in foreign banks, And, um, you know, just got, I think I actually traded platinum and gold too as well. And, and, um, you know, I don't think I ever made a profit on one trade.
0: That's, that's the crypto of our generation. That's where when uh, when we wanted to find the juice, that's where you we went and lever up the commodity futures. Dan, it's been a blast. Where can people find everything that you're up to, your writings, your podcast, the best place to keep up with your thoughts? Where do they go?
1: So for the podcast, you can go to InvestorHour.com. And for you can read about me on StansberryResearch.com. And um, if you are interested in Extreme value, we have a website called extremevalueoffer.com. I should know what that offer is, but they change it. And I'm kind of not in charge of whatever it is, So uh, I don't really know what it is.
0: I'll, I'll talk them into giving a good, uh, a good a good discount for our podcast listeners. How's that?
1: Yes, yeah, do that. Yeah.
0: Well, Dan, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, ma'am. It has been fun. It's been great talking to you. You and I, we're just we, we, we we're like ships that pass in the night at all these conferences and stuff. We should talk more.
0: We'll, we'll do it all the time. Listeners, we'll post show note links to all the things we mentioned today, the books, the conferences, the uh, everything that Dan was talking about, his podcast link, which I highly recommend. It's a lot of fun. It's in my queue every week. Mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Shoot us any feedback you have, criticisms, comments, thoughts, feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Subscribe to the show anywhere that good podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.